uh, with this whole notion of learning how to live. Again, remembering that it isn't some expert who's going to teach you how to live, but you have to teach yourself. You're your own disciple. Um, and now the emphasis is shifting very quickly. You'll be getting into cars and leaving here. And for many of you, it's the first time that you've come and gone as a creation of two experiences, a retreat and then the so-called outside world. And what would be useful at this point would be for us to work on any problems or questions having to do with how to bring whatever it is that we've learned during this weekend into our lives as we find it. It's the same idea of learning how to live. But if you recall, this is a, an, a place of intentional ripening. It's a, an invention. Retreat centers like this and ashrams and temples for a purpose, a specific purpose. The conditions here maximize stillness, no talking, no nothing, very little anything of anything. And now we're leaving here and going to a place that doesn't care about meditation. It doesn't care about your peace of mind or a lot of the things that you value. And the challenge is to live fully there. Because otherwise what tends to happen is we become non-hospitalizable schizophrenics. You know, where we can only be happy in our little meditation room or at Barry. Or it's, and we live our lives between, let's say, the last retreat that we did and the future one that we're planning to do. And in between is only most of our life. Like 99% of our life. That can be avoided. I mean, it has to be avoided because it doesn't work. At some point, unless you're going to live a totally contemplative life, which can be a very beautiful thing. You, if you, but I don't see any Trappist monks here. Or people who are going to, let's say, just live in a monastery for the rest of your life. That isn't our situation. The fact is that we have, you know what your life is. Actually, it should help you to know what your life is even more so. And that's, that's the whole idea of self-re-education, learning how to live. Here the intensity was largely, let's say, the silence and the schedule and getting up early and uh, the removal of a lot of supports that you know, like reading, although some of you I saw were cheating, but that's all right. Remember this quote? We started off the retreat with it. Whether going out or returning, the yogi acts with full attention. By the way, now you're all yogis, officially. I don't know, you may not want to be, but that's all right. With full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, he or she acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, he or she acts with full attention. In taking one's overrobe, bowl, and spare underrobe, the yogi acts with full attention. Whether defecating or urinating, he or she acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing, or sitting, resting or awake, whether talking or silent, he or she acts with full attention. Taking out the garbage, driving the car, playing tennis, making love, going to the movies. There's no end to it. So that, in a sense, there's nothing new to, to be said. It's just taking this to, to the degree to which we've developed a certain amount of steadiness and calm and bringing it to where we're going. And yet there are some, because the content is so different out there, there are some, a few hints, some things that can be helpful. I'm just going to mention a few and then I'd really like to hear from you and uh, I think something more alive can come out of that. Many, many people have found it valuable to set up a personal practice. That is, when you leave here, if you can set up some time each day for silence, or just to sit with yourself in silence. If you can do it an hour a day, wonderful. If you can do it two hours a day, ideally, let's say, at the beginning and the end of a day. But you know what your schedule is, and you also know how much you want to really invest yourself in this. In other words, you can't make yourself be ahead of where you are. You can try, but it becomes um, medicinal. You know, it'll be like taking cod liver oil or something, or some food supplement that you don't want to take. So, the, 
an early question is, how long should I sit? I said hour, and I realized that an hour, you've been sitting 40 minutes, you know, quite a few times. But it's not the magic of an hour, or 20 minutes, or 40 minutes. It's more the quality of the attention. And perhaps even as important is for you to find out how long you should sit. I mean, I could make it easy and just say, everyone, some approaches do that. Sit for 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. And then you'll do it, perhaps, because you think that something wonderful will come out of that, some magical formula. But where does 20 minutes come from? For one person, 20 minutes is not even beginning. And another person, it's an eternity. Okay, you've all gone beyond that. Actually, if we're in eternity, then we wouldn't have to worry. Then we'd all just sit for 20 minutes, so to speak. So what I would suggest is that you experiment with, if it is for you, a modification in your life where you allot a certain amount of time for you, no matter how busy you are. I have friends who are incredibly busy, raising families, running here and running there, and they get up earlier sometimes. They set aside a certain amount of time to sit in silence and to allow whatever's there to come up, to get ventilated, to get observed, understood, assimilated. It also serves as a a reminder as you leave your house in the morning. Say you wash up typically and then set aside a certain amount of time to be in stillness with yourself. If you're living with someone, it doesn't mean you can't sit together, but be still, be quiet. And it sets the tone for the rest of the day. For one thing, it reminds you of the importance of awareness, of paying attention. Now, to many of us here, awareness is not a luxury item. It's not a little hobby. In fact, I don't mean to be uh, overly serious, but you could say it's life or death. Now, I don't know if you see that yet. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. That is that so much of our life depends on that. That is... If we don't pay attention, we literally are not seeing how we're living. And yet, life goes on anyway. One assumption, and to me it's more than an assumption now, is that suffering in this world, and this in a way comes out of the Buddhist teaching, has to do with ignorance. There's a very strong connection between ignorance and suffering, meaning ignoring. Or the degree to which we ignore how we're living how could it be other than suffering? We're doing things that don't work. And perhaps we, we're even getting the evidence of it back time and time again. And so, if that's true, then we're just reversing the process. Instead of ignoring the way we live or selectively paying attention and avoiding areas that have anxiety attached to them, we're trying to devise a way of breaking through that way of living selectively so that it's a smooth, homogeneous quality all day long. That even though the situations change, the people we're involved with change, sometimes what happens to us is wonderful, sometimes it's awful. In the midst of that is a steady flow of attention. The ancients used an image of a bead of strings, the awareness being the string, and the beads being the different experiences that we cycle through in a given day. Okay, that will happen if you want it to happen, if you develop it. Then it grows. Now, I don't think it can develop out of a should. You know, you should be aware it's very good for you. Maybe some of us start that way, but at a certain point, the real unfoldment starts to happen out of love, like anything else worthwhile. You start to see how wonderful it is to live consciously, that even when things go wrong, there's a a certain dignity to facing them. And there's something, I don't even know the word, but it's not such a good word, about what happens of living a life of endlessly denying and escaping and compensating and avoiding. It's not fulfilling. If it worked, that would be fine. It doesn't. Okay, so one, one thing that has proven to be helpful for countless people 
for centuries and certainly in our own society and people right now has been to see if you can't set aside a certain amount of time each day to be with yourself in silence and to just listen, to, to cultivate that quality of deep listening. Totally impractical. Nothing in it for you. That's why it's so practical. It also helps if you can find people to sit with. By now you may have an idea that although many of us, and perhaps everyone in this room, values self-knowledge, it has a person coming to know themselves by themselves. There are a lot of obstacles to it. Perhaps we create them, but they're there nonetheless. Fear, discomfort. And yet, if we come together, there's support for that. And more and more, there are groups available where people can sit together, but to come to know themselves, as we've been doing. Now, if you live in places which don't offer any group sittings, perhaps there's one person that you know. Or you can go into the office and find out if there's anyone on the mailing list who lives in your town or near your town. Meet once a week for an hour and just sit together. That's helpful, very helpful. From time to time, if you can, come to retreats here or there are other retreat centers. If this particular form of meditation feels right to you, come here. If it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're not fit for meditation. It may mean that you're not fit for this style. There are many styles. There are so many different styles to, which are appropriate to the different kinds of people that we are. And sometimes people conclude incorrectly that because they don't feel comfortable or at home with a certain approach to meditation, that in quotes, they're not cut out for meditation. Whereas if you start to look around, if, you, if you've concluded that this is not for you, you probably find some other way that is appropriate. Put the other way, if you felt that this seems to be a fruitful avenue, then I would stop the whole delicatessen mind, you know, of just sampling every spiritual goodie that comes into town. And I would really devote some kind of wholehearted attention to this. You'll never really find out the value of it until you do that. So if, if there is an affinity, then I would, I would capitalize on that. I would use that energy. And then it would suggest to come here from time to time and um, wherever you can find opportunities to intensify the, the ripening that we talked about. And then, just briefly, because I don't want to just go on and on, I'd rather hear what you have to say. The same principles apply if I could act it out or talk it out, you wake up in the morning and you wash. Right? It's already begun in your bed by being attentive to what it's like to be awake. The kinds of thoughts that are on your mind or it's been very helpful for some people to start off by just coming to the breath at the first few moments of waking up. And then from that, perhaps washing and experiencing what that's like, feeling the water, the touch of the water, the towel as you wipe yourself. Perhaps then meditating, sitting meditation, actually. And then eating. If you have time, it would be more slow. If not, you know, whatever pace you have to. And so forth. So that, let's say you sit, you fold your legs or you sit in a chair. You sit for an hour or 20 minutes or 50 minutes or what have you. Then you unfold your legs and then you face life directly with the same energy. It's not different. You come up from the cushion and you bring that attention to whatever is next and you keep moving with that attention through the day many many times losing it it's a little bit like trying to ride a wild bronco some of you have probably experienced it here and this is much more tame in other words you get thrown you know an hour and a half goes by and you not only I mean you just don't know where you've been at that moment you just start over that's all so it's same for me. I'm doing that, too. So it's just continuously beginning again. I would a guess on my part is that one main difference between us, because I've been doing it a lot longer than most of you, is that when I fall asleep on myself and, let's say, I'm not attentive to what's happening, as soon as I realize that, I just start again. Whereas very often at the beginning, we tend to uh, chide ourselves 
or give ourselves a spanking for not being aware. Well, there's a kind of grim heart with the veins tense over here, trying to be mindful or trying to be aware. It's a lot easier than that. It's not. It's not that. Uh, it's not necessary to force it. In fact, it doesn't help to do that at all. And so you keep falling asleep and you keep waking up and you fall asleep and you wake up and eventually you get tired of judging yourself and you just start again and again. So it's, you're endlessly a beginner, endlessly starting all over. And you bring that quality of attention into everything that happens during the day. Now clearly one main difference between being here and where we're going is that here, relatively speaking, we couldn't get into trouble because there was no relationships permitted. Do you know what I mean? We're still uh, responding to each other. But now we're going back to the land of relationship. You know, where people talk to each other and are attracted to each other and repelled by each other and hold each other and push each other away and so forth. Now, this is an enormous challenge. But it's not any less valuable than what we did here. Now, that may sound obvious, but here's why I'm, exp- trying to, why I'm saying that. How many people found, at least at some points during this weekend, that it was difficult? It's what is known as a rhetorical question. Yeah. How many people find relationship difficult? Sounds like maybe life is difficult. No? Yeah. And yet what's being suggested here is that there's hope. I mean, it's not a... It's, I hope it's not fanciful. And it's not going to be given to you on a platter. It's hard work. I mean, you must see that by now. It's hard work. I think it's worthy of... In other words, it's worthy of a person's best energy. You're coming to know yourself. You're learning how to live. Okay, so we know what it's like here, and then we, we go there. Now, very often, that is thought of as the problem, and here is thought of as the solution. In other words, I'm going to get away from all this relationship stuff and go to a meditation retreat center. Maybe I'll become a monk or a nun. And so there's a split. We're seeing this is spiritual, and relationship as basically an impediment to anything, anything spiritual. What's being suggested is, is, since that's where we're going back to, that's where the application of the practice is brought to. It's, it's as simple as that, because that's how we're living. We, we are living that way. We are not monks and nuns. Now, if you look at the whole human race, it seems, I hope this is not extravagant, but it seems to be true that to me that we've failed miserably on this planet in terms of learning how to live with each other. We simply do not know how to do that. You know, on whatever level you want to look at, it's, it's not worked. We don't know how to do it. With all our brilliance and our intelligence and technology, we cannot inhabit the same planet peacefully. We cannot inhabit the same town, the same apartment peacefully. Okay, now, isn't that easily as worthy and objective in other words, for us to learn how to do that as, let's say, going off into a cave in Tibet for 20 years. See, we have all these romantic images about spirituality or going to a monastery. Those are officially spiritual or IMS, Insight Meditation Society. The other stuff, I mean, you know, we want to do it, but... The tremendous amount of energy that's in, that is in relationship, in intimate relationships, of course, but in all, whatever we're in, we come in contact with, is potentially of immense spiritual value. Immense. And it's released in the very same way in which we've been working here. If you're in a relationship, I mean, I'm not going to give you a, any guidelines as to how to have a good relationship. There are enough books to do that. In fact, what I'd like to suggest is that you find out what your relationship is. If I would make any suggestion, it would be that. Whereas, stop trying to have the ideal relationship. Start at the beginning. What is your relationship? And how would you find out if that were true? So we're trying to learn how to live 
And one of the main ways we live is with other people and perhaps with one other. And so come to it with a certain openness, with a certain simplicity, just as you can bring it to the food, to the slow walking, to the breath. Now make the jump and see that it isn't really that different. It's more complicated, more highly charged, and in some ways more difficult. But also, there's tremendous energy that when it's liberated, in other words, when that is harmonized, is available to us. Now, if you're fortunate enough to be in relationship with somebody who wants to do this as well, they don't have to be officially a Vipassana student. I mean, don't become you know, totalitarian about it. But I think it's very helpful if they, w- if they are willing to learn. Then two people can really help each other very, very much. In my own relationship, I find that true. It's not inferior to sitting on the cushion or I'm going to be sitting a three-month retreat now when you all leave. But I'm also in a relationship and I don't feel that it's versus it or anything of the sort. I learn some of the same things and some different things. So that when I'm with this other person or with my friends or working, then that's where I give my best energy in terms of bringing care and attention and interest in learning. And when I'm up here, I, do, I try to do the same. It doesn't feel like a split to me. Certainly not anymore. It used to. Okay, one suggestion about how to do it, and it's not too much in the how-to, is pay attention, obviously. And particularly pay attention to your reactions. Whereas every time we come in the presence of another person, we have a reaction. In fact, every time we come in the presence of anything, we have a reaction. You walk into a room, some reaction to it. It's beautiful, it's comfortable, it's too hot, it's too cool. You're about to sit down on a chair. There's a split second where there's some kind of reaction to it. Oh, that's not a nice chair. Oh, that's an antique. I, wouldn't, I wish I had that chair. Or you sit down on it slightly too low or slightly too high. Or with an animal that walks past you, a slight show of fear, or you're drawn to it, or a child, it doesn't matter, or nature. So the practice is staying in touch with ourselves as we move through life. Here it's been dramatically simplified. Now you're going to where it's quite complicated in a way. Many people, intensity, a lot of people who don't care about all of this. Here we're all like-minded. Now you can see that as an enormous obstacle and a source of tremendous a source of discouragement, or as challenge as, as a, the greatest adventure around. And I'm not limiting it to personal relationship. I mean, whatever it is you're going back to. Some of you look uh, smiling and feel good about it, and some of you looking at me a little bit sad. Look at that, or look at whatever these words that I just said did to you produce a certain, I don't know if I want to do that. Or, that's great, yeah, I do want to do that. I'm not saying one is better than the other. It's just that what your reaction was just now. And so, from this point of view, relationship is a mirror. Every time we come into the presence of somebody, we have a reaction that shows us, teaches us about ourselves. In a very concrete way. It's not an abstraction. It can be the smallest thing. And so, self-knowledge comes out of relationship and makes relationship... You see, all too often we use relationship in a kind of self-centered way of just to get gratification or security. And now, if you want to do that, fine. But what I'm suggesting is there's something tremendously valuable about relationship, which is it's another way of, of coming to know ourselves. Self-knowledge, self-disclosure. Because there's so much power there. Okay. Precisely the power that's there in other words, you can get very wounded in relationships, and probably there isn't anyone in this room who has not been wounded in a relationship. I don't even have to ask you to show your hands, because I know the answer. So, if we've gotten wounded, there's a great temptation to run away from it. Now, one of the reasons that monastic orders exist is that they, in a way, very wisely have seen that, my God, we're not going to get to God or enlightenment if we stay in that lunatic asylum called planet Earth 
You know, we're, you know, men seem to be put here to torture women, and women are put here to drive men insane, and bosses are tormenting workers, and countries are here only to destroy each other, and I gotta get away from that, up to a mountain or to a cave or something. And over the centuries, what has evolved is a monastic culture, which is avoiding these realms. And particularly this tradition, Theravada Buddhism. You don't know this, many of you, but that's, you're getting Theravada Buddhism, at least, one version of it, with a Brooklyn accent, clearly. <laughs> but to some degree, a little bit, it, has, it bears some, a lot, most of what I know that's of value is where I got it from there. I didn't make it up. If I had made it up, you'd be in big trouble. Yeah. And it's a very beautiful tradition, but it has been largely monastic. And so most people who have been very serious about it have opted to leave the society and to do the same practice in monasteries, caves, and the forest. And our situation is different. Our austerities are not having one meal a day or doing the walking meditation near tigers. This is one of the, so, because if you show any fear, they'll bite you, you know. So the challenge is to do the walking meditation in total composure. This was actually done with some yogis in Thailand. And that was a test of your practice. You could do the walking meditation and the tigers don't bother you because there's no fear. Our tigers are men and women, bosses. Whereas we have to learn how to work in that realm. That's where it's so difficult for us. It's not any less of an austerity or an ascetic practice to learn how to, for a man, let's say, to admit weakness to a woman. Or for men and women to learn how to speak to each other honestly for a genuine intimacy to be possible. And that's what this generation is trying. I mean, I'm sure we're all aware of that. And it isn't easy. It's an experiment. And there are a lot of difficulties involved. But many of the people who are here are, try- are in it or want to be in it. So it's worthy of our best attention. It's not unspiritual. I mean, hardly. And so, even though the teaching was given to us and protected for us for thousands of years, mainly by monks and nuns, however it came to be, we live in a situation where that's not how we're going to live. And so, with a slight twist, we can make it a practice that's appropriate for us. If you heard the quote of the Buddha, it didn't say that you only do it at IMS. It didn't say that you only do it in Burma or Thailand. It said, you know, when you're urinating or defecating, we do that everywhere. Almost. We're civilized. So it's bringing that spirit of inquiry and of learning right to where we live, totally, and accepting that challenge. It's learning how to live. It's also very much of a spiritual endeavor, if that's what you want, in that it takes you deeper and deeper and deeper. And you could perhaps say a synonym for spiritual is refinement that is refining our life to the ultimate refinement, whatever that means to you. Okay, any questions about this stuff? Particularly with the addressing it towards how to bring this into daily life. Yes, but you see, everyone is a, is, an, is, a, is a robot. You're doing it with your word processing and the person next to you is doing it with the dishes. And the third person is vacuuming, you know, totally in a, a stupor. Uh, see, I don't know the, the details of that work well enough, but it's possible to make that into a concentration device. In other words, to make it part of your meditation practice by really, ju- by really doing it. See, now, why do you drift off? And, and in other words, you've learned it so well that the body knows what to do. Isn't that also driving a car for many people? Not quite as extreme, perhaps. But when I do bring my attention back to what I'm doing, I automatically slow down. I, I type. Mm-hmm. I type. Okay. Let's not stereotype awareness. See, okay, I've said different things in different groups. So I don't remember where I said what. But, okay, I didn't say it. Perhaps you didn't. 
one thing that could be very, very helpful for us in daily life is from time to time asking yourself, what is my correct situation? If you're playing tennis, it's one thing. If you're walking, doing slow walking at IMS, it's another thing. If you're at a, a party and there's a lot of uh, alive dancing, the awareness will be somewhat different in all of them. See, I mean, you can't possibly have the same specific, minute, detailed attention, let's say, um, having lunch with five friends in a noisy restaurant. But what you can do is quiet down inside, and you're listening to people and looking at them and also eating and tasting the food. It probably isn't as precise and as one-pointed and as in touch as when you're at IMS, when you have nothing else to do. See, this is like a training ground. But, so you do what's appropriate there. So that you need a quality of awareness that where things are just happening on very, very quickly. It's not that you have to go running after them like that. You see what I'm getting at? Now, you will have to learn how to do it. But as you go deeper and deeper into this, you'll see that awareness is there. And it can be anything. Can, everything comes into the awareness, in a sense. Everything is registering that happens to us. All that we're doing is helping that to become conscious. And it could be a wonderful um, approach for you to, to use that. It can really steady your mind, and then you'll find that your sitting is stronger. By the way, that's another point to be made. That is, the degree to which you start paying attention in daily life to, let's say, wash, washing the dishes, taking out the garbage, talking and listening. When you come back to the cushion, you'll see that you go deeper in the cushion. Not into the cushion, but into sitting. <laughs> Unless you're uh, an interior decorator or an upholsterer. I don't know. And it goes the other way. As your sitting gets deeper, you'll see that it becomes a little easier to pay attention in daily life unless you lock into the sitting and make it an exclusive, this is sacred and that's nonsense. Then you'll be incapacitated when you leave your little cushion. Um, she, she had a question. Yeah. Okay. One thing that comes to mind immediately is to have a tremendous sense of your body as you do this. And then let, let it take off. And then, do, do you see what I'm saying? In other words, you're aware of yourself standing or sitting. And I think that will help you uh, be with it as it happens. At whatever pay- See, if you don't need to know the meanings, you don't need to know the meanings. Okay. So then... You- <laughs> I just Okay, when you go back to your job, if we could meet again, you would be able to tell me how to do it. In other words, it'll take some doing, uh, but you'll need a form of attention that's appropriate for you, so that, first of all, that it should improve, help you improve on the job. If this makes you worse, there's something off. Because there's something in awareness, I would say its main function is that it sets things right. That's its job. When you see things are off, you see a snake, you get out of the way. If you don't see it, you don't get out of the way. Maybe. Why not? There may be nothing new that you need to do with that one. And maybe it's more bringing that quality of, of being fully in what you're doing to the other activities in life. Okay, now a funny thing happens though is that if you're really aware of the automatic it loses some of its mechanical qualities and you feel more alive. Even though it's the same motion. Yeah, I mean the, the, but that's the training because that's the only way you get speed. Like that's right. Okay, this brings up a very important issue. Much of our life is routine. It's not just your job. How many times have we gone to the toilet already? And more, how many times have we washed the dishes? How many times have we made our bed? Okay, it gets routine, habitual. In a sense, we're half asleep, we're dead doing it. If you bring awareness to it, it's suddenly uh, brought back from the dead. 
It's revived. Even though it's the same activity. In other words, it could be the two millionth time that you've taken out the garbage. But if it's done with awareness, it's the first time. It's very important to see that because that's what we're, we're trying to rejuvenate our whole way of living. We're trying to bring it all into consciousness. And we do have to do the... If there's some way out of not doing things over and over and over again, great, but there isn't. All of us have a lot of things that we do many, many times. It does not have to become stale, mechanical and dull. But what's required is... In fact, some of the training in monasteries, particularly Zen monasteries, is to take advantage of that. From a Westerner's point of view, when you go over there, you have a romantic notion as to what, let's say, in my own case, the Japanese and Korean Zen monasteries should be. And it's exotic, robes and all the rest of it. As you come to see it from the eyes of Japanese monks and nuns and Korean monks and nuns, you see that for them, it's a very boring setting. And it's just totally routine, simplified, and repetitive. The bells ring, time to bow. Bells ring, time to sit. Bells ring, time to eat. And the challenge is, is to remain awake and fresh in the midst of all of that over and over and over and over. So that's a very wonderful teaching, but you have to really stay awake in the midst of it. There's some of that quality here, if you've noticed. <laughs> yeah. Um, my job was... Uh to uh, wash the upstairs uh, toilets. And uh, the first day I did it, I, I felt like I was doing it for someone. Like, wouldn't this be great to be doing it for some wonderful uh, patriarch? And then <laughs> yesterday, and then this morning I did it, and suddenly that, that, bo- that idea went by, and it was like, oh, that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> and uh, and uh, then suddenly I was doing it for itself, and that was new and fresh. Uh, and that happened again when I went out through the door. It only happened a couple of times. Yes. But I went out through the door and I went out consciously because I was doing it for itself, for being conscious as I was going out through the door, for touching that door consciously. That's why I was doing it. That's right. And that was fresh. Okay, this is... Let's all reflect on this for a moment. Because if you, if you can get this, it'll be so much easier. Whatever we encounter is our life. I know that must sound like, whoa, no kidding. (laughs) Boy, he's really profound today. Really think, in other words, whatever we encounter, that's our life. But we don't live as if that's true. Oh, the movie or the the person that you're going to see three hours from now or the weekend retreat that you're going to... In the meantime, our life. You know, doorknobs and toilet bowls and whatever it is that we're doing. Okay, so... It's not trivial what, what that this, whatever we encounter is our life. It's a question of what value we put on our life. Do we value this precious gift of having a human form? We don't have it forever. And what are we going to do with it? We have 60, 70 years, maybe a little longer for some, a little less for others. And we do have to do those things, routine things. Now, sometimes just that understanding or a reflection on death very, very important. In other words, if you can understand the fragile quality of life, that we ain't going to be around forever, that everyone who's ever been is already gone, and that everyone in this room will all be dead. Fred has uh, talked in another situation about how Tibetan teachers, before they give a Dharma talk, will snap their fingers at a certain number of times. Just when they come out to teach. You know, just to remind themselves that they're going to die. In other words, I'm going to die. So they don't get too caught up in pride. Now, that's, an, that's just another way. It's not really a device or a technique because it's true. We are going to die. But that can wake you up you know, to the reality of touching doorknobs. I mean, that's a moment in your life, in our life, all of us. You can help that along. From time to time, pause. Let's say you're about to do your job. Let's say you had your job here to, to clean out some room. Pause for a second and, and reflect on, I'm about to do this. Or you're about to wash the dishes or work with your word processor. You know, just sort of form the intention to be awake and then do it. You're going in for a job interview. Pause for a, a split second is all you need. You don't have to go into any special positions. Just pause and I'm about to have an interview with somebody about a job. I'm going to try to remain awake in the midst of that. Or set aside 20 minutes here or there, or even five minutes. You're meeting a friend. I'm going to be awake. One person I knew used those, you know, these watches that go off. 
So every time it went off, it was, you know, like, wake up. It became a bother for the rest of us, though. Awareness? Yeah, no, it's not. The choice mainly means the non-judgmental quality of, of attention. Clearly, we have to make choices. For example, I know it's a common misunderstanding, and I'm sorry I contributed to that. Let's say you go into a grocery store, and there's a rotten tomato and a very healthy tomato, and you want to buy tomatoes. Well, I'm into choiceless awareness. You know, just whichever one comes, you just take that one. Thinking it's even more spiritual. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not ego-involved. Just whatever comes my way, I take we're learning how to be simple, but not simple-minded. You know, so that it's, it's more the judgmental quality you know, of condemning things. and It's not to dull our ability to perceive and to make certain distinctions that make life uh, function. So that use of choice is correct. It's more bringing the, an, the attention into what you're doing. And that phrase, in, in a certain way I was using, it has more to do with the sitting practice and not having something official to pay attention to. But even so, we can carry it over. You're sitting, and then whatever is predominant, if you remember the instructions, that's what you're with. Okay. You'll see that life is doing that too. You start, you get into your car. What's predominant there? It's just obvious driving. So that attention gets organized around what has to be done. And then maybe the mind wanders. So that what's predominant, that moment, you're really not paying attention to driving. So you see that you've drifted off, which takes you back to what has to be done, the correct situation. You're you're driving. It's not going to happen mystically. In other words, we have to pay attention to how to to live. What it will help us to do is to make choices that come out of greater clarity. As the mind becomes more serene, then the choices become more obvious as to what we should and shouldn't do. When the mind is confused, it's harder.
food and you not, don't even know what you're reading, I would think it would suggest a certain amount of inquiry <laughs> into what that's all about. You know, why, why, why are you living that way? No, I've noticed that. I, it, it's nice to sit down with a newspaper and breakfast and you lose breakfast sometimes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. I used to do that too. But I'm not telling you not to. See, in fact, it's best if it comes out of your own experience rather than it should. You may discover, hey, I'm not really getting a sense of what's going on in the world and I'm not enjoying my food. And if it comes out of that motive, it's, it's learning. That's what I meant by learning how to live. See, then, then it's alive. If it's following some teacher's principles, you'll soon get bored with it. It's just, you know, it's left over from what our parents and kindergarten and all the rest of the authorities telling us what to do. And we're all too eager to accept that. Please tell me how to live my life. And our minds are filled up with other people's ideas as to how, including some of my crap now is in your head. But I hope that some of it is basic enough and fundamental enough. It's mean, it's the, the idea that you have to find out how to live and that there are some tools. For example, take the simple gift of the breath, which I have found it is an annoying... If you didn't learn anything else this weekend, just knowing that you have breath, I mean, not just that you're alive with breath, but that you can come to the breath, not only in sitting, but during the day, from time to time, you're being blown off center. You're losing it. You're at work and you're bored or you're thinking three hours ahead or you're not hearing what people are saying. Sometimes all it takes is one or two conscious breaths, you know, just in, out, or whatever it is, and you're back again. How can learning happen? The, the mind doesn't want to learn. It's not in the mood to learn unless it's reasonably calm reasonably steady, and that's why we have to do this practice. So I'm suggesting that we can re-educate ourselves and learn how to live. But practically speaking, we need equipment. We need to be fit to do that. And one very important aid in that is the sitting practice. Working with the breath and the, the slow walking, and there are many other techniques which help us slow down, become more steady, become more unified, integrated, one-pointed, then the whole notion of being able to educate ourselves or re-educate ourselves is a possibility. If the mind is just wacky, going like that, it's fanciful. There's no real learning going to come from that because the instrument is defective, the learner. If it doesn't, I would get out of this. Yeah. I would drop it like a hot potato. <laughs> you see? So there's a, you know, I mean, I can, I, I've been bringing up kids and things like that. But society and families demand a certain self-consciousness uh, of, on the part of all of us as we grow up. But then ourselves inside also seem to demand at a certain point throughout our, or many points throughout our lives, a certain self-consciousness. Yes. Okay, let's say you're self-conscious in the sense you're uncomfortable. You go into a room of people and, oh, hi, how's everything? You know, you're very self-conscious. Awareness can feel that. In other words, again, learning how to live. It's not, it's not, a, it's not such a, a fulfilling way to live if you're self-conscious a lot. Those of us who are shy, etc. What The corrective comes out of really feeling what it's like to be self-conscious. Not trying to do an impersonation of a spontaneous person, which doesn't work. Oh, let's dance. Put on the music, you know. <laughs> um, it's not convincing. It doesn't last. So that the true spontaneity comes out of the self, out of awareness of self-consciousness and seeing it and learning how that's produced in us. In other words, being so concerned about what other people think of us. Am I dressed properly? You know, am I handsome or beautiful enough? And seeing what we do to ourselves when we live that way and freeing ourselves from inside. And that, yeah, I see you on the That's right. Much of what people call spontaneous is just that we get ourselves tense in one way and then we break out of it, you know, with a compensation. We call that, you know, Saturday night fever. 
And then we build up the tension again all week and then, oh, how spontaneous I am. Yeah, and having the, being pliable enough to be able to take new, up new options that you never thought were appropriate for you. I'm not the kind of person who does that. And seeing that, how we limit ourselves. Yes, I was um, interested in your thoughts about the waxing and waning of attention over mm-hmm. years of practice. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, I haven't been practicing that long, but over the several years that I have, there are periods when I when it's easier to pay attention from, for, extent, for months. And then all of a sudden, it's gone. Mm-hmm. Gradually, it's gone mm-hmm. for months. And is that a natural happening? It's okay. That is natural <laughs> for me, but it's very discouraging the second month. You know. Okay, then, what, okay. The first months are great. <laughs> I understand. Once you catch on to what it is you've been doing, being not attentive, it's discouraging. Yes. Then you have to look at discouraging, discouragement. Because, strictly speaking, all that's necessary is to just start again at that moment. Otherwise, everything else is ancient history. It's all over. File it away with dinosaurs and Christopher Columbus. You know, even though it happened five minutes, it's over. Let's start being aware now. Even, do you see what I'm getting at? But the mind will get lost in memory and then it will punish itself for what it remembers having not done. Exactly. Yeah. Now, that's all we have. There was some action around here. No? Okay. Well, we have a moment of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.